So at the heart of Elijah's story in the Old Testament is the issue of idolatry. God sent Elijah to challenge those who'd begun to worship Baal and Asherah rather than him. Now very few of us today go around different temples offering sacrifices to other gods. Consequently, much of the Old Testament's warnings about this can seem a little irrelevant. But it is important we realise that there are still competing claims for our allegiance. There is one idol in particular whose temple we all frequent, and that is the idol of materialism. When we walk into the shops at Brayhead or Buchanan Galleries, we're bombarded by advertising, all designed to show us the things we must have to fit in and be successful. We're told that we need the latest clothes and jewellery and household gadgets, and sadly, we often believe it. In fact, this message comes to us from all angles. Television, magazines, billboards, and most pernicious of all, the targeted advertising on the internet. Almost subconsciously, we're being conditioned by the algorithms of materialism and the drive for prosperity. And by this means, there soon becomes a new God taking our attention and governing our lives. And let us not be naive. Every human being becomes like the God that they worship. Soon we find ourselves buying things, not caring whether the producers of those goods have received a fair wage. All we want is a cheap deal. Soon we forget our responsibility to the poor in our community, for we need all the resources we have to spend on ourselves. And it's becoming clearer and clearer by the day, that as more and more of us worship the God of material things, our greed is devastating the planet. I hope we can see from this just one example that idolatry today is still a serious issue. In the Old Testament, Baal was the god of materialism. He was worshipped for his supposed power to provide rain and fertility and riches. Kings like Ahab thought that Baal would underwrite their reigns. The ordinary people thought that Baal would provide them with bountiful crops and large families. The image of Baal at that time was a bull, an animal that few ordinary people could afford. Baal was seen as the cosmic god of prosperity. Sadly, just like today, the desire for wealth among the ordinary people of Israel slowly started displacing their allegiance to God. They were sucked in without even realising what was happening. Many of them thought they were still following the Lord and that no harm would come from worshipping both gods simultaneously. But idolatry always has consequences. By the time of Elijah, it had trapped Israel into patterns of behaviour that were virtually impossible for them to get themselves out of. Indeed, several generations after Elijah, another prophet called Amos was still denouncing the wealth and luxury of Israel. 
This time not because they were worshipping Baal, but because they were gaining it at the expense of the poor. So the background of our story today is that Israel have got themselves into a hole. But graciously, God summons Elijah to call the nation back to him and the good life that he had planned for them. We saw Elijah's work begin last week in 1 Kings 17. That chapter began with Elijah marching into King Ahab's palace and announcing that a terrible drought was on the way. And that drought was an undisguised attack on Baal, for he was supposed to be the god who brought the rain. Fast forward three years and the land is now in real trouble. The drought has devastated the farming community and famine is now spreading. King Ahab himself is having to choose whether he feeds his people or the horses of his military. And it says a lot about how much idolatry damages us when we see in verse 5 of chapter 18 that Ahab chose to feed his horses. Clearly, this cannot go on much longer. And God knows it is now time for things to come to a head. So he sends Elijah back to the king with another challenge. Israel were finally going to have to make a choice. Would they worship Baal or the Lord? That choice was found in the opening verses of our reading. Elijah challenges Ahab to bring all the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel. It was a very deliberate choice of location because it was the centre of Baal worship in Israel. On arrival, Elijah wastes no time in issuing his challenge. Verse 21 really is the key verse of his whole ministry. He stands before the people and he calls out, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Here then is a very important lesson for us all. God brooks no rivals. We can either worship the loving creator of all that is, or we choose to worship an idol of our own making. That is the only choice. Sitting on the fence, trying to create a smorgasbord of different faiths and spiritualities is not an option. It's either the one true God or not. So this is the great choice that the people of Israel are faced with. But just look at how they respond. Elijah calls out, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The people said nothing. What is going on here? Maybe this is a, a quiet moment of realisation. Maybe for the first time the reality has dawned upon them that they can't sidle through life hedging their bets. It's simply impossible for both the Lord Almighty and Baal to both exist. One of them is a fraud, a fake, a figment of human imagination. The other is sovereign of the universe and everything that exists. The people must choose only one. 
That is certainly true. But maybe there is something else going on as well. Maybe the people's silence shows us that this choice between God and Baal was a difficult one. Let me explain what I mean. Last week we saw Elijah bowl into the court of Ahab and announce that a great drought was on the way. That was not because Elijah was a weather forecaster. It was a message that had been given to him by the Lord. That drought had then lasted for three years, exactly as Elijah said it would. The choice laid before the people then seems like a no-brainer. God announced a drought, the drought happened, he must be Lord of all. But by the sheer fact that 1 Kings 18 takes place, we can see that during the drought, there's not been the great turning back to the Lord that we might have expected. The people have remained, rather like they were in this moment, silent on it all. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why might that have been the case? I think there may have been three contributing factors. First of all, the people's idolatry was socially conditioned. The average member of the public fell into worshipping Baal because everyone around them was doing it. Going to God one minute and Baal the next, it had become normal. So people did it blindly, almost without thinking. Secondly, the people's idolatry came from the fear of missing out. Israel desperately depends on rain. It's semi-desert in places. No rain means no crops and much suffering to follow. So the average person must have thought to themselves, well, what if Baal is real? What if worshipping his idol does make a difference? If there is even a chance that the followers of Baal get better crops, I'm in. I might not believe it all, but I'll tick the box just in case. I think that fear of missing out is prevalent in so many people's attitudes to idols and other religions today. Third, the people's idolatry came from pressure that was put on them from above. In verse 19, we discovered that there were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah in the land. And that is a lot. And what is more, these prophets regularly ate at the queen's table. In other words, they had royal sanction and support. It is very hard to stand up to things that are supported by those who are ruling your country. The state has great power. It has means to inflict punishment. So if all the people turned their backs on Baal, they'd have the fury of Queen Jezebel to deal with. And that was an ominous thought indeed. So we need to get our heads around the mindset of the people at the time. As we read this story 3,000 years later, it seems obvious that Israel should choose the Lord and ditch Baal. But once you've been worshipping idols... Turning away from them and turning back to God is often a very difficult choice. And that's why we all today must do what we can to not start worshipping idols in the first place. 
So the choice that Elijah calls the people to make is a difficult one. But I want us to realise that it is also a reasonable choice. Notice in verse 21 that when Elijah issues his great challenge, calling his listeners to stop wavering around, he's talking directly to Ahab and the people of Israel. He is not confronting the Phoenician people who lived in the lands where Baal worship originated. Maybe they hadn't heard about the Lord yet. And if that was the case, then the tone of conversation would need to be different. Elijah calls out to the king and the people of Israel because they definitely did know the Lord. And therefore they should have known better. I said earlier that Mount Carmel was a good location for this showdown because it was the place that Baal was regularly worshipped in the land. But did you notice the details of verse 30? There was also an altar to the Lord there as well. An altar that had fallen into disrepair. That altar had been placed there to mark the work of the Lord in the past. Israel had experienced God provide for them and protect them from their enemies over and over again. And that altar presumably would have been set up in place as a memorial to one of those occasions. It had been erected as a lasting testament so the people would never forget the great things that God had done for them. But the sad reality was that the people had forgotten. As the years had gone by, the altar had been neglected and fallen down. At the same time, the altar to Baal had been built up right next door. Perhaps they'd taken some of the stones from the Lord's altar to erect the new one. Can we see? If we start to give something too much attention in our lives that is not the Lord, slowly but surely, God gets forgotten about completely. The point I'm trying to make is this. God had given his people plenty of evidence over the years that he was indeed the one true God. When Elijah called out to him in prayer in verse 36, he directed his prayer to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. Those patriarchs lived hundreds of years before Elijah. In the time since, there'd also been the exodus and the provision of the promised land. Elijah calls out to the God of Israel's history, the God who'd given the nation birth. Israel had so much experience to draw upon, so it's entirely reasonable for Elijah to call them back to God. They really should have known better. This then is a wake-up call to all of us today. We may have been following the Lord for a long time, but we can still get sucked in to idolatry, particularly if it seems to promise us material gains. Of course, the events of this chapter have been designed by God to give his people a whole lot more evidence for them to make their choice upon. Everything here is choreographed to prove the falsity of Baal and the truth of God. Baal had been unable to produce a drop of rain for three years. And now the people were desperate. 
Now we know ourselves that after a long hot spell, the weather often breaks with a storm. Thunder booms, lightning flashes, and the rain finally starts to lash down. Elijah's challenge is about this. He challenges the prophets of Baal to call on their God to send a lightning bolt to start a fire on the altar. If Baal can do that, then the people have hope that rain will come again soon. And with that challenge set, the prophets are soon hopping around, seeking a response from Baal. Their rituals and dancing done to attract his attention. But of course, nothing happens. As the hours pass by, Elijah starts to taunt them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he's asleep. Must be awakened. Through mockery, Elijah is making clear that if no lightning or rain comes, all the people will see that Baal does not exist. Hearing Elijah's taunts, Baal's prophets quickly realise what is at stake. Their whole religion, the source of their status and wealth, and their ticket for food at the queen's table is under threat. So suddenly they become frenzied. Their prayers become this great display of pagan magic and bloodletting rituals in the attempt to get Baal to prove his worth. But there is nothing. It's all to no avail. And eventually it's Elijah's turn to step up. He is to do the same thing. He is to call on God for fire from the heavens. A lightning bolt to demonstrate rain will soon be on its way. But before Elijah begins, he saturates the altar in water to make sure there is no doubt about what is about to happen. When Elijah does call on God, it's the complete opposite to how the prophets of Baal behaved. There's no frenzy, no chanting magical abracadabras over and over again, and definitely no bloodletting. Elijah just speaks a simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Elijah prays for what really matters. He prays for the miracle that will finally give the evidence that the people need to make the right choice. He prays for the sign that will bring true repentance, a casting off of Baal and a putting back of the Lord to his rightful place. Of course, that is what happens. For the Lord is real. And the Lord is powerful. And the Lord answers the prayers of his people. The fire falls from heaven and in response the people fall as well. They fall prostrate on the ground and they declare aloud, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It is the reasonable choice. They should have had enough evidence to make it before. 
But now they have witnessed God's power with their own eyes. They finally make the right move. They worship the Lord as the one true God. And after restating their allegiance to him, the rain soon returns. So choosing the Lord over their idols was a difficult choice, as the people were under a lot of pressure. But it was a reasonable choice. There was good evidence to back it up. I'd like to finish by pointing out just one more thing. This choice was also a fearsome choice. I've always loved this story, ever since having it first read to me as a child in Sunday school. But now that I read it as an adult, I reach verse 40 and I wince. Elijah commanded, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. And they seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. I wish Elijah had not slaughtered the prophets of Baal. After all, he already made his point, hadn't he? Maybe God feels the same. Nowhere in this passage does God command him to do it. Nor does the narrator ever congratulate him for doing it. On the other hand, maybe there is this tacit awareness here that humans are fallible and could soon be led astray again if the source of temptation is not completely removed. Whatever is the case, Elijah acts with this scary power and authority and no little strength. It's fair to say that this is not what prophets usually do. And it's not normally what God does either. So we must conclude then that what we have here is this extraordinary occasion where God is drawing a line in the sand. He's had enough. And Baal worship was to be no more. And this ending reminds me a little bit of Jesus' warnings about hell in the New Testament. They're meant to shock us. They're meant to highlight the fearsome choice that lays before us. There really are serious consequences when it comes to choosing whether we follow God wholeheartedly or not. Both Elijah and Jesus were imploring us to make the right choice. For they cared deeply about the people. So let's draw all that we've thought about to a close. This is a story about the dangers of idolatry and a reminder that God is out to defeat it in all its forms. And that's because idolatry damages, damages us and the world. Idolatry is very subtle today, but it still has a big effect. So we must hear Elijah's challenge for our lives and make sure that we waver no longer, that we put God first in our lives. <laughs>